Last Sunday was quite a celebration, wasn't it? There was wonderful music from our choirs, Easter lilies everywhere, children with Easter eggs, and lots of folks in the pews. It was a glorious, joyful day. As I said, the children were still celebrating Easter, and, but a week has gone by, and it's somehow not quite the same. Yes, we've done a lot of singing already today, and it's been great. You guys were really troopers during that. Thank you. Um, but this Sunday after Easter is not called a low Sunday for no reason. Not only are there significantly fewer people in the pews, not that all of you aren't important. Thank you for being here. And uh, the choir has the day off. Even the light bulb above the choir has gone out. <laughs> and the euphoria of Easter has kind of worn, worn off. Christ has risen. Yes, alleluia. But life has also gone on as usual, right? And maybe that's to be expected. After all, on the night of that very first Easter, the disciples were not singing alleluia. Quite the contrary. Even though Mary Magdalene had come to them proclaiming, I've seen the Lord, and even though two of them had actually run to the tomb and seen that it was empty, Jesus' disciples are in hiding, cowering behind locked doors, fearful of the, of the authorities and unsure, unsure what they should believe or what they should do. And then suddenly, Jesus is there, standing among them, greeting them with the words, peace be with you. Oh, how they rejoice when they saw him. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, a week later, the disciples are again behind shut doors. Only this time, one of them, Thomas, is with them. We don't know why he wasn't there on Easter itself. Maybe he decided to see if the coast was clear, Maybe he'd gone out to buy food, or maybe he was just walking, trying to decide what he should do next. In any case, when Thomas comes back to them and hears Mary Magdalene's words in the mouth of the other disciples, he's skeptical, and understandably so, for dead men are not supposed to come back to life. Then once again, Jesus appears, speaking peace and laying all doubts to rest. This is a familiar story to most of us, I would dare say. Maybe not all of us, but most of us. I've certainly preached on it a number of times. But this time, when I read the story over, something different caught my attention. That it was by his wounds that Jesus was made known to the disciples. Thomas, of course, demanded such evidence. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in his side, I will not believe. And Jesus readily meets Thomas' needs by giving him the opportunity to do just that. But he also opportunity, asked, offers that opportunity to the others. Listen again. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and his side. In other gospel accounts, Jesus is recognized when he breaks bread, when he reenacts the Last Supper. But in John's telling, Jesus is recognized when he offers his body so that others can see and touch the nail holes in his hands and the slash in his side. Why? 
Obviously, seeing Jesus' physical wounds assures the frightened disciples that the figure standing in their midst is not some disembodied spirit. But more importantly, it tells them that this really is Jesus of Nazareth, the man with whom they traveled and shared meals, the ones who had awed them with his teaching and his healing power and who had appalled them when he had knelt and washed their feet. It tells them that the crucified one is indeed the risen Christ. When the disciples saw Jesus' wounds, when Thomas put his hands on Jesus' hands and in his side, they knew without a doubt that Jesus was with them in the flesh. In the flesh. Those words send me back to verse 14 of the first chapter of John's gospel, which reads, And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. You all know those words. The word became flesh. It's what we say a lot Christmas time, especially. But here again, the word, the risen Christ, becomes flesh. John's gospel is all about God's incarnation, the embodiment of divine love and presence in a human body, living with other human bodies. And his glory, God's glory, is revealed as Jesus interacts with others. In chapter 2, Jesus turns water into the best of wines, and John writes, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory. And that's not the only time. Jesus reveals his glory as he sits by a well, drinking water from a cup offered to him by a Samaritan woman, and in turn offers her living water. He reveals his glory as he feeds thousands with five loaves and two fish, then names himself the bread of life. He reveals it as he opens the eyes of a man born blind by smearing mud that he has made with his spit on the man's eyes. Jesus reveals his glory as he raises the stinking body of Lazarus to life, washes the dirty feet of his disciples, and ultimately, as he offers himself on the cross. Over and over again, Jesus makes the presence and glory of God known in tangible, touchable ways. It's no wonder that Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God, when he sees and touches the body of the risen Christ. In that moment, his faith is literally hands-on. When Thomas makes that affirmation, Jesus responds, you have seen me and believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. These words are a gift to us, a message from scripture, Barbara Brown Taylor writes, that our ancestors rolled up and put in a bottle for us because they want us to experience Jesus, if not in the flesh, then in the word. We sometimes think of belief or faith as an intellectual exercise, a set of principles or doctrines to which we give our assent. But in John's gospel, to believe in Jesus is to be in relationship with him, a relationship with God through him that, in the words of Caroline Lewis, not even death can bring to an end, 
a relationship that offers us abundant life, not just in eternity, but here and now. And I dare to think that this relationship with Jesus that has been promised to us, that has been given to us, is not just experienced through the word of Scripture, but that even now it may be experienced in the flesh, not perhaps in the literal flesh of Christ, but in our own flesh. Jesus says to the disciples, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. In a very physical way, Jesus commissions his disciples to do the same work as he has done. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit. And now theirs is to be a hands-on faith, for they are to live in such a way that others come to know Jesus and to experience God's love, forgiveness, and healing power for themselves. Bear in mind that Jesus is not, in the words of Elizabeth Johnson, giving his disciples some special power to decide which sins will be forgiven and which will not. Rather, Jesus is further specifying what it means to be sent to make known the love of God that Jesus has made known. As people come to know and abide in Jesus, they will be released from their sins. If, however, those sent by Jesus fail to bear witness, people will remain stuck in their unbelief. Their sins will be retained or held on to. The stakes of this mission are very high indeed. The stakes are also high because to live such a hands-on faith is to be vulnerable. The body of the risen Christ was not made whole. It still bore the wounds of crucifixion. And likewise, when Jesus commissions his disciples, he does not add, by the way, you won't have to go through what I did, it's okay. He knows their faults and their failures Their fear and their shame knows them well, and he knows that they too will suffer the pain of the world, that they too will be wounded as they live out their faith. Yet he neither condemns their path nor warns them about the future. Instead, Jesus offers his disciples peace, a peace that will strengthen and sustain them as they face their own crosses, fulfilling the promise that he made at their last meal together. Peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. It is the second Sunday of Easter, and now the risen Christ comes to us unlocking the doors of our hearts and inviting us to see and touch his wounds. He comes breathing the Holy Spirit into the sin, our sin-clogged lungs of our souls and sending us out into this community and into the world. For now we are the body of Christ, sent to feed the hungry and to bless the children, to welcome the lonely and comfort the brokenhearted, to offer hospitality to the stranger and help to the needy, to care for one another 
and to offer the living water of Christ's love and the bread of his life to all. That might sound pretty intimidating, and you might be thinking, I'm not ready. I'm not worthy. Well, neither were those first disciples. <laughs> and thanks be to God, Jesus does not send us out as paragons of virtue. Instead, he sends us out just as he sent them, bearing the marks of our fear, our fault, our shame, to share both our wounds and the good news of God's forgiveness and grace with others so that they too will know that they are accepted and love, so that they too may come to believe and have life in his name. And he sends us out also with his peace and with his blessing, blessing us doubts, fears, wounds, and all, so that together we may live out our hands-on faith in hope and joy. Thanks be to God. Amen.